<laughs> we work so hard to get stronger, happier, more productive and successful. Don't forget the secret ingredient. Get grounded in play. Play grounding when it's time to get a life. Hello and happy holidays. It's time for one last playgrounding for 2016. I'll be back again with weekly episodes starting on January 4th of next year. But first, I want to just thank you guys so much for making the launch of this podcast so much fun for me. Um, I've really appreciated all of your comments and your love. And I'm also having an amazing time meeting so many new friends from all over the world who are so passionate about play and y'all know who you are. I just I really, really appreciate your support. Um, again, I'm Kara Stewart-Fortier. I'm here in the Treehouse at Theory Labs at the Brewery Artist Complex here in Los Angeles. Um, thank you so much for joining me during this busy season. Today's guest is going to blow you away. I was introduced to her through a friend who's been a big supporter of the show. Her name is Alana Benari. Her startup 21 Toys, it's more than a company. They are a revolution, a toy revolution. And on their website, they ask this question. Our revolution demands answers. Where are creativity, play, teamwork, and empathy in our classrooms, our boardrooms, or the public square? And more importantly, how do we teach these critical skills? So basically, we know how to teach math, reading, and science, in school, we learn how to compete to win. You know, we have to make the highest marks and beat out all the rest. But how do we teach future generations and even our own generations that are currently living and working in our workplaces and engaging in political discussions today? How do we teach empathy? How do we teach not to fear failure? Well, their answer? With toys, of course, <laughs> with fun. Um, Ilana is a multiple award-winning industrial designer, TEDx speaker, and Ariane de Rothschild Fellow. She's been featured in The Guardian UK and was Independent UK's Small Business Person of the Week. She's also the winner of C2MTL's Emerging Entrepreneur Award. She's been working at the intersection of design and social innovation for over seven years at studios in Montreal, Helsinki, London, and most recently, Toronto, Ontario. Alana is best known as the founder, CEO, and lead designer of her first startup, 21 Toys. She transformed her thesis project into the company's first product, the Empathy Toy. Originally designed for visually impaired students and their sighted classmates, it's now used as a tool to teach empathy to anyone and everyone, including you and me. So she's already in 43 countries, over 1,000 schools, 30 post-secondary institutions, 100 offices, and I hope there are a lot more, and even three MBA programs. And the Empathy Toy was also featured in Time Magazine as one of the six new technologies shaping classrooms of the future. So now, meet Ilana. Ilana, I'm so grateful that you're speaking with me. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, so I want to kind of jump right in. But first, kind of talk a little bit about the challenges that you are tackling at 21 Toys, um, we heard a little bit about it in the intro. Um, what, what is new? What is it? Why is it called 21 Toys? What kind of problems are you solving? 
Mm-hmm. So uh, it's funny, people hear 21 Joys and they think we're designing 21. Um, <laughs> so the uh, we are designing a series of toys, mm-hmm. um, but really it's about, um, you know, the reason it's called 21 Joys is because we're designing and manufacturing toys that teach 21st century skills. So it's that 21 and 21st century. So mm-hmm. people are talking about these key skills that we now need, not just in schools, but in the workforce as well, which yeah. is uh, innovation, creativity, collaboration, creative problem solving. Those are even starting to feel a bit like buzzwords, but they're buzzwords for a reason. It's because they are really, really crucial. The mm-hmm. challenges, they're really hard to practice, assess, and understand. And where we come in is that you also can't teach those skills with textbooks. No. So we've kind of stolen this headline from the Huffington Post um, that wrote about us, that uh, toys are the new textbooks. And so um, the reason for that is really because uh, not only our education, you know, the model that we're teaching with, but even just how hum- companies are hiring yeah, uh, is changing. So, you know, companies like Google mm-hmm. that are, you know, at the forefront of like, quote unquote, innovation, um, you know, they're coming out and saying they don't use marks, they don't use grade point averages as a metric to assess if their candidate is going to be successful. There's a certain level of IQ and, and tech knowledge, mm-hmm. but really it's about those EQ skills, those social and emotional skills, and empathy is at the top of it. So wow. uh, we, it's it's been pretty phenomenal, um, even just articles from the Harvard Business Review that have been coming out the last few years, very much so in the last year, mm-hmm. uh, where they're doing more and more um, research on not just the importance of empathy in the workforce, but the actual, you know, benefits of it. So not only does that, does in, when an organization invests in and hires for em- empathy as a skill, um, they are finding that not only do those companies succeed internally where, you know, teams are working better together, they're mm-hmm. better collaborating, um, they're, they're better understanding their users and their customers. So, they had a, this thing called the Empathy Index that um, this incredible woman, Bethany, from the UK uh, wrote about in Harvard Business Review, which is that I think it was like the top com- the companies that showed the highest levels of empathy in her Empathy Index mm-hmm. uh, had a 50% increase in that, like in returns. So they, wow. they're actually making 50%. So we, are, we joke that empathy pays, <laughs> um, but I think that's, that's why a lot of organizations are now getting our attention. I, I studied 21 Toys essentially because I was a really good student. I was one of those students that was like, not only do I want to get good marks, I want to get, I want and I need to get a full scholarship (laughs) to get into, you know, the university and to be able to further my education and and go into the program I wanted to, which was industrial design. And I got that full scholarship. I had incredibly high marks and I discovered very quickly that being good at school had very little to do with being good at life or even work for that matter. So I started with this idea that, you know, using toys as a vehicle to teach these EQ skills as a way for schools to be more innovative, creative, and collaborative. Mm-hmm. That's where we started, and it just was a natural progression now that we work both in, we're in about a 1,000 schools, but we're also in 100 offices. So that's where I'm getting very excited. It's about kind of the merger of the two, what we're not teaching, but also what we're now training for and expecting people coming out of school and into the workforce. That's great. And even having this conversation, mm-hmm. sometimes it's a little hard for people who maybe aren't in it all the time to realize that the way you and I maybe were taught and the way that, you know, school has been for us isn't feeding that. Um, how do you think, do you mm-hmm. think it's, we were, we were st- kind of at the tail end of the industrial revolution. I know. I still, I remember I discovered Wikipedia like yeah. the week 
before I graduated from university. <laughs> like, oh my God. Yeah. I, I, I went into industrial design in the early 2000s mm-hmm. and our photography class, I remember our, our teacher was like, oh, digital cameras are just a fad. <laughs> so I bought a really expensive DSLR. And then the next year he was like, oh, no, wait, wait these are really great. And I'm like, well, I'm out like a significant amount of money. Yeah. <laughs> you weren't on top of the trends. But like, yeah, I, I think my age group is a really interesting one because we're kind of that sandwich you know, generation. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm a little bit older, so it all came a lot later for me into my thirties mm-hmm. of going, Oh, th- you know, this is all very new. And I've been wondering how in the world you actually prepare people and, and you're choosing to do it through play. And from what I was mm-hmm. reading on your website, you are not the first one to take this idea. You're kind of taking no. it into the next level though. Can you explain a little mm-hmm. bit about that history? Yeah, so when I I uh, first started, I wanted to start design like 21 toys. I was kind of word prototyping, so I tell people like I want to change education with toys. And then the further I got into it, I I mean I was pretty committed at this point. <laughs> like I was like I'm starting a toy company. Yeah. Um, and in that early days, right after we called it 21 toys, um, I discovered the story of kindergarten, which is how kindergarten you know was invented, mm-hmm. which is with this man Friedrich Froebel, uh, this German. Um, educator and thought leader and he really understood the value of play as a vehicle for learning but it wasn't necessarily understood so he actually before the creation of kindergarten he invented toys and he called them gifts Mm -hmm. and he designed 20 toys uh, I think only 10 of which were actually like ended up being created Mm -hmm. Um, but he did have 20 toy designs uh, that he called gifts and that is what led then to this creation of kindergarten with like this these pillars of of toys from just the idea of like different shapes materials textiles that allow children to really explore their world yeah and so we we like to joke now that you know if he designed 20 we're designing the 21st toy so it's you know if if Frida Froebel were allowed alive today what would be the skills he'd be designing for and so we believe that it's not just empathy which is our first toy but our next toy is about failure improv you know, what are these key skills that are foundational mm-hmm. to getting to us to being a more like creative, collaborative, yeah. innovative community? Yeah, that's great. And so some of the some of the problems he was solving for his time, it was just late 1800s. And so there were little tiny balls of string. There were little blocks. What kind, yeah. of, what kind of skills was he trying to instill in the new upcoming workforce? Mm-hmm. So he called them like uh, gifts. So if you look it up, um, you can actually look up the history of Froebel gifts, mm-hmm. which is pretty uh, pretty incredible. But I mean, from my understanding, um, you know, the first the first uh, gift that they built was actually um, balls of yarn. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the idea is it's really to get children to start playing with forms and like the physical world with things just for as simple as like holding, rolling you know, watching that ball move around. Um, gift number two, which is quite interesting, it's, um, I believe it's a lot more about spinning and balance. Huh. And so it's, it's yeah, it's shapes that are hanging and it's about taking like something like a cube and then spinning it and then it actually turns into a different shape just by that movement. So it seems quite basic, um, but I like to look at not just uh, like these, these ideas that maybe that might seem frivolous or like silly, it's actually really important as foundational skills where the idea that these gifts uh, have been noted by so many of these visionaries of like the 20th century, which is like a, 
Frank Lloyd, Frank Lloyd Wright, mm-hmm. Buckminster Fuller, Kandinsky all said that Froebel's gifts were instrumental in shaping the way that they viewed the world and that they thought about shapes and textures and movement and design. That is amazing. Absolutely. And, mm-hmm. and so you're filling some pretty amazing shoes. You're, you're taking it now into the 21st century. <laughs> yeah. And um, I'm really taken. I, I first heard the very first thing I learned about you uh, after I was introduced to your work was your TEDx uh, regarding mm-hmm. the empathy toy. And you told the story of kind of your inspiration of how you're the first of your toys to solve 21st century um, workforce um, needs was the empathy toy. And I would love if you could share that a little brief, uh, just share that story with us. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, it's funny. I designed the empathy toy before starting 21 toys and it was a number of years before that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually my thesis project in university. So mm-hmm. I studied industrial design, which is product design at Carleton. And in your thesis year, you spend the year, you're given kind of a challenge, Mm -hmm. uh, a very high level challenge, and you actually do two months of empathic research, uh, and then you rewrite that brief. So my initial brief was to design a navigational aid for the visually impaired. Mm -hmm. And we were working in collaboration with the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I like to joke that I think they assumed that we were going to, I was going to design like a Blackberry with really big buttons. (laughs) Um, But uh, (laughs) thank you for laughing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and um and and I think what was interesting was that my brief was designed navigational aid for the visually impaired community and so I think I went to the library read about visual impairment for like an hour and I'm like why am I reading a book (laughs) like (laughs) I should go talk to people from that community um and I think a big part of empathic research and the work that we do about educating around empathy is empathy is not just sitting and thinking about how somebody feels it's about going look, I'm probably going to make a lot of assumptions about this person that I'm now designing for. Mm -hmm. Maybe I should go talk to them. Maybe I should spend a day with them. And I think the turning point for me was not just spending time with the visually impaired, but spending time with their friends and family. Getting a much better context for what that looks like and what that means and what I discovered in two months of you know, spending time with adults and kids who are visually impaired, those who got it later in life, those who were born with it, it was that there, no matter what, was this huge social and emotional gap between the visually impaired community and the sighted community. So I rewrote the brief. So it was still about designing a navigation rate for visually impaired, but it was really focused on um, students, specifically in grade four, which is the age where it kind of stops your like quirks or your differences stop being less like special and start being more of a liability and a hindrance to your participation within a group. And so I uh, focused very much on this one uh, girl, Emily, who was born with visual impairment, and I spent the day with her. And what I discovered is that students who are visually impaired either can go to a school specific for the visually impaired. And the thing is that they're that can be an overnight school, so they don't see their friends and family. They're in a, a community that's much like their own, which is incredible, but it's a very hard transition when they leave. Um, and the other alternative is that they're in a quote-unquote mainstream classroom, and they then have an adult with them yeah. all day. They have to miss, like, I think 30% of class time. Uh, things like recess are really challenging, and so it's really up to their classmates to invite them into wow. um allow them to, you know, participate. And so there's, uh, what I thought was, what if, what if I, oh, sorry, and then I did that. And then the other thing, the really key part of it is that uh, there's something called orientation mobility training, that uh, if you're, if, if you have a visual impairment, you 
take orientation mobility training, which is the foundations are where am I, mm-hmm. where am I going, how do I get there? And so I thought, well, what if I made a navigational aid, so a toy or a game, I didn't know it would be a toy at that point, but a game mm-hmm. that had the foundations of where am I, where am I going, how do I get there? But it could be played between, you know, sighted and, and the visual impaired community. So that's where I started. And that's how I ended mm-hmm. up designing the empathy toy. So empathy is a huge part of it, but just as much as creative dialogue is. So empathy and wow. creative dialogue is really the key where the brief was, I, I gave myself the brief, which was, okay, it has to be fun, but it also has to be really insightful and it needs to be not exclusive, but inclusive. So it's a game that can be played mm-hmm. and is inspired and for the visually impaired community, but not only for the visually impaired community. And I discovered yeah. that because a lot of my testing was done in my studio with sighted adults which is how I discovered like, hey, this actually could be really helpful for far beyond that community. And I think that's because where am I, where am I going, how do I get there, just acts as this incredible metaphor for so many things that, that we all deal with on a day-to-day basis. Absolutely. I mean, and, mm-hmm. and just to speak to that, you're, you're, this empathy toy is now in yeah. a thousand schools, 45 <laughs> yeah. countries, a hundred offices. It's being used to help with job interviews. I mean, so this is no joke. This is a very, this is a very powerful. And I, I noticed when I look at the pictures of the toy, uh, and I, and I actually think back to the toys from, um, Friedrich Forbel and how they just kind of had this very iconic look to them. And we take it for granted now. It's, it's things that we've seen and grown up with and the toys that we find in most like children's nurseries. But this, I really think is just such an iconic look and it's such a different thing because you have to play it with another person blindfolded. Um, and in your TED talk, you actually have a demonstration of two people playing this game. Um, can you, is there any way, like on a, in a podcast setting, uh, that you can kind of just just describe it, describe how to play it? Sure. Yeah. It's funny. I always talk around the empathy toy. And it's <laughs> such a visual. <laughs> I know it's so. So I was trying to practice what, I, what we teach, but um, yeah. So it's an abstract wooden puzzle mm-hmm. that's played by two or 10 players. Um, the most basic way, although there are multiple, so many, like 50 different ways to play it, the most basic way to explain it is, let's say, uh, Cara, if you and I were playing, we would each have a set of these five abstract pieces. Mm-hmm. They would be identical in every way except for color. They'd have various textures, materials, and shapes, and they connect in hundreds of ways. So if you and I were playing, um, let's say a facilitator or a teacher would take your set, and they would make it into a pattern. You then, Car, would have to describe that pattern to me so that I could recreate it with my identical set of puzzle pieces. Mm-hmm. The challenge is that we'd actually both be blindfolded, wow. and we would both be, yeah, and we would both be blindfolded before the pattern's even made. Mm-hmm. So essentially, in five to fifteen minutes, you, we, we, as well as the group of people watching who can see but can't speak, mm-hmm. gain huge insights into how we deal with patience, frustration, but most importantly, how do we creatively communicate with each other yeah. when all we can is with our hands and so no matter if it's two or ten or 25 people playing if it's a six-year-old or the like CEO of a company mm-hmm. every gameplay is different because it's a reflection of that group dynamic and that is what allows it to go from just like a nice fun building block mm-hmm. to this really powerful tool um, that can be used to talk about how empathy uh, relates to the work that you're doing so we take the gameplay and we use it as a way to start a discussion about a real-life scenario that, that that gameplay represents. So the toys in that shape. Um, but yeah, we have uh, our teacher's kit essentially starts with that as a foundation. And we have a guidebook that has over 50 different ways to introduce the toy. 
uh, and debrief it uh, with different ways that you can have various people blindfolded and not and group dynamic changes mm-hmm. that allow you to have discussions on creative dialogue, teamwork and collaboration, conflict resolution, um, design thinking. So uh, Google is using our toys right now to introduce design thinking as part of their like maker spaces. That's great. Uh, so it's, yeah, so is the Royal Ontario Museum started a club steam program with uh, an entire empathy corner with our empathy toy. Um, and we have this incredible story from this high school in Winnipeg that started an entire 21 leaders program that we're now trying to roll out to multiple schools. So we were just in Winnipeg in May. We got an honor from the mayor of Winnipeg wow. um, because of the work that, that the toy did where the, the guidance counselor, Robin, who's incredible and been using the toy for a year, to start discussions around empathy and use it in different like uh, conflict resolution settings that, well, what if we took the students, picked, you know, 21 leaders in, within the school and taught them how to facilitate um, workshops with the empathy toy with younger students. Oh. And yeah. And then when they started that program, the vice principal told us that they've been tracking it and they have, they got an 85% reduction in office-based conflict referral, wow. like conflicts. Yeah, so we got an honor from the mayor of Winnipeg on the work it's doing around bullying and anti-racism, mm-hmm. and we're hoping to like kind of spread that, you know, uh, in as many schools as possible. So we're rolling out that program with the empathy toy. So what does it look like for us to, you know, create leaders within the school, like empathy leaders? That is amazing. Um, it's incredible. And then with organizations, we're going in like with the Bank of Montreal and United Way and FedEx. Mm-hmm. Uh, hotels we're going in and we're running workshops with their teams mm-hmm. to introduce what empathy would mean to them and we can do that multiple times but really our hope is that after those workshops we start finding ambassadors within organizations in the HR talent and learning departments mm-hmm. that are then going okay now we have these toys how are we going to start using them internally so free the children uses them for internal training mm-hmm. uh, and we just wrote about yeah the Mars discovery district is using our empathy toy in job interviews that is so great yeah, so it's it's really exciting to see every place that empathy is not just uh, nice to have, but is necessary. Absolutely. And and just to kind of give a little example, it's hard here. To, uh, in the TED Talk, they didn't actually do it perfectly. He didn't. They didn't have exactly no. what it was. So, so, for example, if I'm the one blindfolded, but I have the built piece and I'm trying to communicate, and I'm trying to tell you it's the piece with the bumps that are round, and I'm trying to describe it, and I'm feeling like, this person sitting across from me who's also blindfolded, they're not getting it quick enough. If I have, if I'm an impatient person, that's going to come out in that moment maybe, or mm-hmm. like what are some other kinds of traits that might reveal themselves through playing this game? Yeah. Well, people always say like, how do I win empathy? <laughs> <laughs> so I would say uh, the goal of the game is to recreate the other player's pattern. Mm-hmm. The criteria for success is how you deal with, that not working out. Got it. Yeah. Does it usually, so, unless you're really like-minded, is this kind of, is this a huge challenge for a lot of people? Honestly, it really depends. It just, it doesn't even just depend on that specific person. It depends on their dynamic. Ah. Like you could have two people play it and it's great. And then you introduce a different person and suddenly it doesn't, it's always a reflection of the group dynamic as well as where that person is that day. Mm-hmm. Like we bring different, you know, levels of patience <laughs> yeah. to throughout the day and throughout the week. So I think it's, it's, I'm never, I, I, I'm never not surprised, I would say when they see the gameplay, but I think the true way to win at empathy, I would say is to practice things like active listening, listening, uh, checking your assumptions, mm. uh, touching base, positive reinforcement, 
Um, acknowledging when you don't understand something. Yes. Not just sitting and being silent. There's a really important, um, there's so many important lessons that can be drawn from it based on how we change the gameplay. So th- I described kind of basic gameplay where there's two blindfolded players. Mm-hmm. We do a, a version of it where there's one blindfolded guide, so the person has a build pattern, and there's three blindfolded builders. Mm. And so now you're actually getting three people at the same time building something. And then we'll do that again, but we'll have the blindfolded guide sighted. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of assumptions that a sighted guide would do way better. Ooh, wow. But what we find a lot is that it's kind of a 50-50 where sometimes they do better, but sometimes the communication gets way less empathic and collaborative because they're all in the same level field. And there's just one person who's like the, the ultimate, the person with the all the information. And so everyone is suddenly quiet <laughs> and it is a very like robotic instructions um, that can sometimes make the experience a lot less pleasant, which can actually affect success. So yeah. I think it's about agility. It's about uh, flexibility. I think a lot of failure and improv are inherent in navigating this mm-hmm. unknown reality, which is I don't know how to describe this weird shape. No one's telling me the words to use it or how to navigate that. So mm-hmm. how do you creatively deal with that frustration Yeah, um, and get consensus? And build consensus. So. I can I can completely understand why so many offices are are taking this up. Not to focus on the workplace part, but having been in a in a large you know multinational corporations marketing department dealing with all the different mm-hmm. the designers and the coders and the marketing strategists and all these people, none, none of us spoke the same language, and that was a constant problem mm-hmm. that our leadership was trying to solve. Um, and this is just so brilliant for that. Um, Thanks. And, and I think it's, I mean, it's a really challenging time because there's so much complexity right now, especially mm-hmm. in the way that we work. But like, that's such an amazing opportunity, like yeah. the level of diversity that you get from people with all walks of life, mm-hmm. all different like backgrounds and education that are coming in and trying to work together. And instead you're like, oh, I don't talk to engineers. They're impossible. <laughs> like, you know, you don't want that to be the takeaway. And I think no. so often when we talk about group work, mm-hmm. Like I used to say when I was in school and they would be like group work, like the only thing I, they're like, oh, let's teach how to work in a group by making people work in a group. Mm-hmm. I'm like, the only thing I learned from group work was that I hated group work. And so <laughs> Me too. I think like it's really important to say, look, we believe in diversity. We think it's important to not just have like an echo chamber. It's important to have lots of different, you know, backgrounds and thoughts and perspectives coming into this 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 team. Mm-hmm. But we need to acknowledge that. And so we need to start to, you know, educate ourselves on how to navigate that in a way that means that we get the most out of that diversity as opposed to just starting to create silos and and frustration. And speaking of diversity, I know we talked a lot about the office environment. Um, You said you've also used this in schools where obviously the dividing lines are so strong. Uh, Kids are thrown together from different races, uh, uh, different like backgrounds of income, you name mm-hmm. it. Uh, what are some of the things you've seen with like maybe teens or kids? Um, do you have any interesting examples of things you've seen in that arena? Yeah, I mean, I'm not in every, I haven't been in every classroom in a long time, but I'd say the most recent one was with those 21 Leaders students. Yeah. We actually had them come. So we came to Winnipeg, we met with the mayor to receive that honor, but we also ran a session where we trained a new group of teachers within Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. And we actually brought some of those student leaders with us to help us train the teachers, wow. which was pretty, pretty powerful. And so I would actually use more of their words, which is they said that what they found is that by playing a game like this, they discovered how their language changes when they're stressed, their language changes when they're being impatient. Wow. Um, 
And we had one student that said that he realized that he was actually being really mean when he communicated with his brother. And he was saying that it really changed the way that he, he communicated with him. And it could be verbally, it could be nonverbal, like just in terms of tone and body language. Like it's, it's really interesting when you start to give students and kids, especially with adults as well, like a language for it uh-huh. and an understanding of what even empathy means. But then when you see it in practice, and I think that's where there's a big difference between the theory and the practice is that we go, okay, empathy is about the imaginative act of entering into somebody's, you know, somebody else's shoes. Mm-hmm. But it's taking that knowledge and using that to influence your actions. That's what's so important. Yeah, and I, I'd almost be tempted. I know a lot of people I know, and I I live on that edge where I have a lot of people in my life who voted for Trump, and a lot of people in my life who you know don't want to talk to any of those people. It, it's I've, I've I have this deep now desire to get the empathy toy and pluck people try to get them all together with yeah, the we have had a significant amount of traffic from the u.s oh, <laughs> that, which has been quite interesting um yeah i think i mean i talk about we've been having empathy for such a long time i think now more than ever it's very relevant mm-hmm. which is that i think when we don't communicate when we stick to biases on both sides mm-hmm. we it's very easy to vilify and write somebody else off yeah it's a lot more uncomfortable and it takes a lot more work to talk to somebody else that has a different opinion or different yeah. background than you. Uh, and I think that's where the work starts. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's so important to be comfortable in that discomfort. And I like to joke that like toys and games are discomfort. It's designed discomfort. It's like how unco- I'm going to make you just uncomfortable enough that you're laughing, but you don't hate me. <laughs> that's awesome. And that's, that's game and toy design, right? Yeah. That's, that's what you're doing. You're, playing with people's comfort levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think getting comfortable discomfort is necessary, not only if we're going to be empathic, but if we're going to be innovative and creative, like that's not a comfortable process. That's a very uncomfortable process. That's yeah. a very vulnerable process. I think Brene Brown, a lot of people talk about, so she's uh, an amazing uh, thought leader when it comes to empathy and, and resilience mm-hmm. and I, want, I don't want to get this wrong, but she has this incredible quote that like innovation is the birth or sorry, vulnerability is the birthplace of innovation. Ooh. And it's so true. And I think that's yeah. where we really come in and that's where we get really excited. Cause if you can get through that discomfort, that's when really incredible things can start to happen. It's in that friction. Wow. That is amazing. And, and you know, the next step, the next toy that you're working on, um, the failure toy, speaking of vulnerability mm. and, and putting this in, like this, this is really exciting um, considering the impact the empathy toy has made. How, how are things coming along for that? Yeah, I mean, it's super meta. Mm-hmm. It's the most meta thing because uh, we, we have pushed the launch mm-hmm. a few times. Um, well, I, so I think the, the two things. So the intention with the failure toy is really to um, much like the empathy toys, it'll be a cousin to the empathy toy and, and all of our toys essentially will be able to work independently, but also as part of an, a larger narrative or arc. So, mm-hmm. I mean, every time we play the empathy toy, it immediately goes into discussion around failure and resilience. Mm-hmm. Um, so the failure toy is essentially going to be, um, another abstract, you know, physical product that is played collaboratively. Mm-hmm. Um, but the focus instead of blindfolded communication it's going to be a lot more around sighted assessment Mm -hmm. which is visually like you're you're going to be given a task that's quite challenging Mm -hmm. um 
And we're playing around, much like Froebel's second gifts with balance, we're going to be playing around with like mobility and balance. Mm-hmm. Um, but while you're trying to accomplish this really daunting task, you're going to be assessed in real time by the observers. Wow. And so what that one, what do we want to do is open that up into a discussion of like, how do we react to failure and what, how do we even define failure and when do we decide something's failure? Because in sports and music, failure is called practice. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> like, it's not like, oh, I didn't get the, I didn't get that shot, so I'm done. Yeah. It's like, no, you're practicing until you get it. Mm-hmm. But in our learning, in our education, there's no word for it. It's just failure. Mm-hmm. It's this stigmatized thing that we should avoid at all costs. So we've, I've kind of created this term <laughs> I feel really strongly about, which is that we need to start practicing failure education instead of like failure abstinence. Because right now it's just about, well, we, it's a natural, normal part of the way that we grow and develop and we, you know, everybody's going to go through it, but yeah. we're not talking about it. We're just saying, just don't do it. Yeah. And so instead we should say, hey, it's going to happen to everybody. So instead of like closing our eyes and hoping everybody makes it okay, let's talk about what does, what does failure look like? How do we navigate that? How do we practice safe failure? Mm-hmm. You know, because I think right now the worry is that we just say failure is, let's like, here's failure everyone's going to start like failing all over the place. Yeah. So yeah, for us, it's about using the failure tour to start that discussion. That is great. Um, much like the empathy tour, we're not like, hey, be, be empathic always. <laughs> it's about, let's just understand what is empathy and how, what does the, um, how does empathy play a role in our, the way that we navigate through life? And it's the same with failure. Absolutely. Failure exists. So it's not just like, oh, don't fail ever. Mm-hmm. Or like the static community, which is like fail all the time. It's like, mm-hmm. well, how about we just, talk about it in context so that we can just better understand it absolutely it's a lot more nuanced than that yeah and, and as a musician as somebody who's mm. you know, if you or and, and I was an actor for a while I don't talk about it all that much but <laughs> <laughs> but the first thing you learn is is to open up a space of play during your practice sessions especially you know think singing and using your voice and things like you're going to hear some awful sounds sometimes but you can only really get to the pretty ones until you know when you practice and it's just interesting I'd never thought of that that there is nothing there's no word for that outside of those types of practices mm-hmm. and music and wow yeah that's really, really badly powerful. branded right now <laughs> yeah no it's it's the person who fails gets it, it becomes a part of their personhood I am a failure whereas mm-hmm. in in something like music no I'm just a musician who's practicing and getting better you know so this yeah is, this is exciting that wow <laughs> I'm really excited about this <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's really exciting. And like my personal relationship with like that thinking is kind of what started me down this journey of starting 21 Toys, which is I was a really good student in high school. And then I get into a design program. And like, I don't want to say half, because that Mm -hmm. sounds really intense, but a huge majority of not just the students, but the professors in my program were dyslexic. Wow. And like, both of my design bosses before I started were dyslexic. And I think that there's, you know, people who who are dyslexic, you know, they see shapes and <laughs> they see things differently mm-hmm. that actually ends up making them incredibly fantastic designers. Wow. But it makes it really hard for them, for most of them to navigate the education system, especially the older, older, um, like my professors who went through school where they didn't even have a term for it. They just were like, well, you're slow. You have a learning disability. Yeah. And so they go through school thinking that they're failures when in fact, just the system of education that was designed didn't have them in mind. Yeah. And so just this, this idea of how we structure that where it says, okay, students who can memorize, and I just learned 
Like I gave a talk, a creative learning talk on how school is a poorly designed game Mm -hmm. where (laughs) I just got good at the game. I was like, okay, I'm going to memorize something. It'll be in my brain for 48 hours. And then I don't need to know it after that. So it's just about like information regurgitation, Mm -hmm. you know, instead of a practice and practice should involve failure. It should involve feedback. I should like, I should be taking a lot of risks when Mm -hmm. I'm learning something And the idea that risk is like the last thing you should be taking, just like learn how to get it perfect and then be perfect from day one is ridiculous. And like we are setting kids up right now, like the failure toy, like I, I talk about it, we can talk about it in a light way on the design end, but on the very serious end, like I'm throwing out this statistic with (laughs) no link whatsoever, but the, um, you know, we, we, we do monthly training sessions on the empty toys. We have a lot of like teachers and HR managers, you know, people from all walks of life are joining in those sessions. And I mean, we had a teacher say, you know, she's saying like kids these days, and you should definitely fact check this, but she said, uh, students nowadays are more stressed out than they were at, during like the great depression. Mm-hmm. I have like, heard that. I've heard that as well. Yeah, and there's so much pressure being put on students to get it right, and that's because there's really serious consequences to getting it wrong. Yeah. Like, in my experience, if I tried out, like, in design school, I got an on full scholarship because I had a certain grade point average, and then I go into design where it's, like, the workload of a, of a very intense physics program but the arbitrary marks of an arts program <laughs> – so I want to take risks. I want to see if I can, you know, we did a mis- mini mass manufacturing program. Like we, we tried to injection mold something and I was like, if, if this doesn't work, I'm getting an F mm-hmm. because wow. I didn't succeed in that project. But the process was phenomenal because we set ourselves such a high bar mm-hmm. to be like, oh, can we try to injection mold something? Let's try it. And so there was like the AF students where I know long term that made me a better designer. I was an AF student. But in the short term, I lost my scholarship. Oh, my goodness. I wanted to take some risks. And also my school also, they just decided no one gets A's anyway. So that was at the door. But it's like there's very real consequences to not getting those marks. Yeah. And then it's ridiculous because, like, I was never asked for my marks when I got hired. I've never asked somebody for their marks when I've hired now on my team. Me neither. So why was I, like, what? (laughs) Like, that was my currency. But then it's like the that currency is like completely useless outside of that setting. Yep. And all I want to know is what have you done and what have you learned? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and is there is that talk online anywhere? The um, schools. Yeah. Design? Yeah. If you Google schools design as a schools a poorly designed game. Got it. Uh, oh. on, I think it's on YouTube. Uh, it's also on creativemornings.com, which is an incredible global speaker series, mm-hmm. um, which is free. I, I think it's there in. Um, I, I don't want to say how many countries, but like definitely over 50 countries, mm-hmm. maybe over 60, uh, where they do monthly free speaker series where they provide breakfast and inspiration. So there's people from not just the design community, but um, from that from that creative community that comes and talks about a specific topic. So I, my theme was uh, play. So wow. I talked about talked about school as a poorly design game. That is great. And I, I really want to, so I'm going to make sure that in the show notes on playgrounding.com slash 22, we're going to have uh, links to your TED talk, basically your website. Um, but I really want to make sure I put those videos there of your talks. Um, you also, I know there are probably a two groups of people who might be really wanting to get in touch with you right now. One of them being people who would like to bring this 
this into their classrooms, bring the empathy toy or in their HR departments. I have a few mm -hmm. friends from my old marketing world. I'm going to be sending this stuff to immediately. <laughs> um, but like, what would they do if they would like to, uh, to participate and use your toy? Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of ways for people to get involved. So when I started 20 Toys, I was like, I'm making toys. I'm going to make guidebooks. So our guidebooks for teachers mm -hmm. have, like I said, over 50 different ways that you can actually start using the toy right away. Mm -hmm. uh, we have the facilitators kits, which uh, an HR manager, you know, a director of partnership of like talent and development um, are facilitators. Mm -hmm. We have like eight pre-made workshops on diversity, inclusion, change management, um, uh, also uh, team building and leadership. So those are all just available online. So we have an online store. So if you, like, our website is 21toys.com. It's the words, not the numbers. Yes. Uh, but if you Google Empathy Toy, mm -hmm. you'll also find it. Um, so you can peruse the toys. Um, we also, it's not necessary, but we've been getting a lot of requests for it. So training, we offer online 90-minute training. So we've done that with uh, some of the schools that we have in, like, Australia and um, and uh, organizations in Dubai um, who want to connect with our facilitators. So it's a way kind of to introduce the toy, but also to specifically talk about applications that you want to start using it in. Mm -hmm. uh, we do training also in our office in Toronto, and we also do travel and provide workshops. So we have a, an amazing uh, facilitator, and our, that community is now growing, so we're bringing on more facilitators. Um, so I was just in Chicago last week, running workshops will be in Montreal next week. And I was in Hong Kong, <laughs> wow. Chinese University of Hong Kong uh, in August. We're running an empathy and business workshop, a full day one with Great. their executive MBA students. So if you go to our website, you can see everything on the toys, workshops and training. Okay. Um, and if you want to read about case studies, mm -hmm. uh, you can get to it from our website or you can just go straight to empathytoy.com, mm -hmm. which is more of our like portal so we have stories on the 21 leaders program on club steam um as well as how you know organizations are using it for for hiring as well so great yeah look up empathy toy that's probably your first the first Perfect. way to find it and then on uh, twitter and instagram it's and facebook it's two one toys Great. And I'll make sure to link to those as well. Um, the other group of people I know, sometimes I've, I get requests from people who just want to collaborate with people. And I know you have this thing called Coffee Talks I saw on your website. That's probably for the locals. I'm but... so happy you brought a coffee talk. That is so, and I love that it's talks. Coffee talks. <laughs> so make sure to link to that okay. as well. I, I, so for context, so I, Funny <laughs> Toys is four years old. Mm -hmm. Um, we're really small. Uh, I'm the founder, CEO, lead designer. Um, I have an incredible small but mighty team. Um, but I've bootstrapped my way through this business. Mm -hmm. So uh, mass manufacturing physical products and selling them into schools while bootstrapping, mm -hmm. I discovered is like really, really hard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, we've managed to do it through a combination of awards. Mm -hmm. So we've won a small handful of like pretty substantial award loans. Mm -hmm. um, a much smaller amount of grants and the majority has been through in-kind services and then just pre-orders. So the first school that ever found us actually saw my TEDx talk on Twitter. Mm -hmm. They put in a really, really huge pre-order, which helped me pay for our first production run. That's so wonderful. I'm actually just in the next uh, week or so going to be publishing kind of the origin story of how 21 Toys started That's great. and how I'd be bootstrapping my way through it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I started Coffee Talks. <laughs> 
because a lot of people have just met us organically. Like we don't have a PR team. We don't have a marketing department. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's just, it's really grown organically. And I think it's exciting. Like, um, we're in 45 countries and that's all just through word of mouth. Wow. And so because of that, the, the blessing and the curse of that is that I get a lot of requests for coffee mm-hmm. and not just in Toronto, but you know, people are in town and, and students who are doing research and students who are also designers who want to start their own business. So entrepreneurs, female founders, designers, people are just interested in what we're doing. And so I had to start saying like no to coffee. Cause like I'm still working usually like my day starts first thing in the morning and goes at least till midnight. Oh my gosh. This week in particular, I've been working till three in the morning cause we have a lot of overseas issues right now that I need to deal with. And I'm, I'm also, running all of our production manufacturing overseas and logistics. So that's just what it looks like. to like, wow. <laughs> um, So having time for not just one coffee, but like five coffees a week just isn't, it's not doable. So mm-hmm. I just was like, instead of saying no, what if I said yes <laughs> to a one hour virtual coffee talk? So I've done two of them so far. Uh, and it's been really exciting because it's not only a way for me to connect to that community like we've had it's not just Torontonians or people from Canada you know I have people I'm like how did you even hear about this like (laughs) this is ridiculous uh but other designers you know we have a designer from the UK right now and he's in his final year and he wants to know how he could turn his project into you know possibly a company so I'm so happy to share that because I think there's so few people who are doing this especially designers who are making physical products especially within the social innovation space so Um, I can give up an hour a month. That's something I can easily say yes to. That's great. Uh, so yeah, that's why I started Coffee Talks. But it's uh, anyone that joins, you know, ask whatever questions within reason. Yeah. Um, and I don't just answer your question, but you then get to meet the other people in the room or the, the virtual room, the Google Hangout. That's um, yeah, wow. it's been cool. I've, I really enjoyed it. I, I, it, it's reduced my guilt dramatically also. <laughs> People are like, I'd love to go for coffee. And I was like, I would too. But I physically can't. You're like, I'd also like to eat lunch. <laughs> yeah, which, by the way, like, I, I know it's like seven at night right now. I, I just ate my lunch about Aww. 45 minutes ago. So Aww. I think it's, it's okay. It's just uh, what it looks like. It's fine. Um, I, I think it's, I, yeah, I'm really enjoying coffee talks. That's and great. also just selfishly, I think it's really nice to just see where everyone else is at and what other projects people are working on. Oh, absolutely. And it's super generous of you to even still take the time and like, you know, want to collaborate with other people and give them <laughs> like, that. So. It's, it's incredibly selfish. Like <laughs> I'm, I'm purely doing this for my own benefit, which is like guilt remediation. So like, I'm like, okay, I don't feel guilty about no, saying no, no. all these people. And also I'm, I genuinely am finding a lot of joy in it. So I That's hope great. I can keep it up. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And I am going to let you go. It's the end of the day there. I am just so grateful for this conversation and I'm really excited to share it with everyone. Um, So thank you so much for being on Playgrounding. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Kai. I'm glad we actually did finally get to connect. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'll see you later. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us. You'll find Ilana's TEDx talk, as well as links to all the things we discussed in today's show, including her recent Medium post, These Are Not My Pants, and Other Ways I'm Bootstrapping My Way to the Top. Have the happiest of holidays, you beautiful people. And please, just go out and do something, just because it's fun. I want to challenge you to do one thing you've always wanted to do, just because it's fun. Maybe something you don't ordinarily do, 
before January 1st. Just make 2016 a little bit better for everyone. Then tell me all about it, okay? You can write it into the comment form on playgrounding.com, speak it into the SpeakPipe audio feature on the website, or even write me at kara at playgrounding.com. You have two weeks, so hopefully you have a few days off between now and then, so no excuses. Get out there and have some fun. See you next year.